Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. <laughs> well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. Have we ever talked about the fact that we take swing dance lessons on the podcast before? Yes. We have? I'm pretty sure we have. Yeah. It is it one of your favorite parts of your life? No. It's not. I mean, I enjoy it mostly. What do you only mostly enjoy about it? Like what do you not enjoy about it basically? Um it's not really my type of music. Yeah, East Coast swing. Yeah. I mean, now I do like that song a lot because who wouldn't like it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, also, there's just like, I don't feel like I'm, like, with the counting and stuff, I'm not good enough just to go and have fun with it. So it's still work. Now, there's where I don't, the and, part I don't like about it. We aren't very good at it. I don't yeah. want to be good at it. We've yeah. been doing this for a long time. But, we, but sporadic. <laughs> I was going to say, but let's see, last time we went was like back in the summer. Yeah, we don't go during my uh, soccer seasons, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, so it just, you know, it would be fun if we were better. Cause then yeah, I would the have people more... that are good. Watching is a lot of fun. Yeah. I love going to watch. One of the things that's interesting about it to me is all the dancing that we do. We've done... a a couple of different types of swing dancing won't bore everyone with the details but it's always been lead and follow dancing so there's one person that's the leader and there's the other person that's the follow it's not just like playing off each other free form dancing yeah um and the so we each have to learn different roles now we've gone the traditional route where i'm the lead and you're the follow but you can go the opposite mm-hmm. anyone can be a leader they're very yeah. Very clear about that. Anyone can be a leader. Anyone can be a follower. And and the instructors and a lot of the better dancers, they can both lead and follow, yeah. male and female. But you and I are barely hanging on uh, as it relates to our our own roles of lead and follow. And the reason I bring it up is because it's it, it relates to what we're going to talk about in this podcast. I have very specific things I need to learn how to do. And you have very specific things you need to learn how to do for the the old swing dancing to come around and look yeah. like we have any idea what we're doing. We th- There's a woman from one of my writing groups that attends the place where we uh, have gone. We went over the summer anyway. And I was dancing with her at one point, And she's a really good follow. And she was doing her best. And I rammed into her like, like a linebacker coming across <laughs> the middle to tackle a wide receiver. I cannot believe she still talks to me. I, I hit know, her so hard. She's still in your writing group. I like pulled her left and I went right and wham. That was bad. So I'm not very good at the lead role. And in fairness to honesty and truth, you are you struggle to follow because you want that element of control. Is that a fair way to say no, that? No, I want that element of just like I don't want to fucking count the steps anymore. I just want to dance. That's why, because I'm like, and because you're trying, I mean, that's where I got hung up was I'm like, oh, I'm just trying to count the steps and trying to keep it all together. And I have been told by other dance partners that I am a good follow. Oh, good. 
I have been told I'm you're definitely a good dancer. But I, but one it when I don't the know if lesson I say you're a good follow, but you're with definitely you, a good dancer because because it's different. Because then, like when we're doing the lesson part, mm. I I follow. Yeah, I, I'm giving Matt a very like don't you dare even you know. Yeah. To, you know, I'm say that that's my different. Chair yes. But when it's time for the music and it's just the open dance, then I'm like, forget it. I'm tired of learning. I just want to dance. I just want to move around the dance floor, have some fun. I feel like this is a promo for Footloose. I just want to dance. I just want to dance. Is that Footloose? I think so. I think we're going to title this episode, It Takes Two to Tango. Now, we've talked not at all about tango, but we have talked about dancing. And I know that's terribly cliche to say it takes two to tango, but we were having a conversation recently and somebody that was participating in that conversation with us said those very words. And I thought, you know, that's super cliche, but it really, really fits this discussion. And so it'll fit the discussion that you and I are going to have because we're basically talking about that same thing. It takes two to tango. It takes both sides needing to want to get better individually and for the relationship to get better. They both have to want it in order for it to work. You know, I, I just was sharing, and I we've shared this many times, but it, it just came up again within the last 24 hours that our original kind of mission as we drifted <laughs> from just talking about and writing about my sobriety, me, 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 to talking about you and talking about relationship stuff, our initial goal was to, you know, hey, we were making it, we were, it wasn't smooth, it wasn't easy, there was no guidebook, but we were going to survive, it looked like our marriage was going to survive, and so when we got into this work, we wanted to help people save their marriages, and then pretty quickly, as we got to know people, and got to hear the details of their stories, we realized, oof, that's not the goal, to help people save their marriages. The goal is to help individuals be healthy individually and successful individually in their recovery. And if both sides of the street did their work and got strong and healthy, then perhaps the relationship could survive because the relationship was receiving effort from two strong, healthy individual people. And so rather than look at this like, hey... Maybe people can save their marriage. We started looking at it like, no, no, no. People need to find their own peace, peace and their own path. Peace? What's that? That's peace and path together. And their own, uh, their own stuff. They need to feel good themselves. And then maybe that will lead to uh, the marriage being saved. So both sides need to want it to get better. And... If both sides need to want it in order for it to get better, that means either side can train wreck it. That's true. So, and the, you know, the, there's a couple of ways to describe that. I think either side can push it down. Either side can say, and I'd love to get your reaction to this because you are a master pusher downer. Why are you giving me that face? You are. You're, you're. I feel like I'm making much better strides. Well, of course. So, you're you're doing great, but it's you've got a track record and experience. Yes. It so um so yeah, one of the ways that 
the thing can get wrecked is by just pushing it down. And, and, and we see that a lot where, you know, a person, and it, granted, we don't always know what led up to the pushing it down and the, the ending it, but it, it, sometimes people just have had enough and they're done trying to work on it and just, or they, or they never kind of figured out how to try to work on it. And so just push it down and hope it goes away is the goal and the tact that they take. Do you remember, like, was that a conscious thing for you? Were you just like, I don't want to deal with this. I'm going to push it down. Um, I don't think it was a conscious thing. I think it's just something that was sort of learned over, over probably my life in a lot of ways. Like, you know, just with the upbringing of, I didn't want to cause trouble for my mom because my sister was the troublemaker. She was, you know, uh, more than six years older than me and she was getting in trouble. And then that would prompt my dad who they were divorced to come and help, you know, discipline my sister. And then that turned into them arguing with each other. So I just tried not to cause waves. And so sometimes I knew that, you know, my feelings could potentially cause problems. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. And then, you know, then fast forward, like, as we're conditioned as young women to, like, you know, we're like, oh, well, we're not gonna, especially, you know, back in my formative years of, like, being a teenager and stuff in the 80s, like, they're just, even though there was women's lib, there still was very much a, a sense that you just, like, kind of succumb to whatever your boyfriend wanted to do or, you know, have right. opinions about what kind of, you know, if you were going to go bowling or if you were going to go to movies, you just let them make the decisions. So I think that we're kind of like trained to. <laughs> we were watching Fast Times at Ridgemont High. And that is so great. One of the dating advices of the young teenagers, one to another was, find out what she wants to eat and then you order for her at the restaurant. Yeah. And then the restaurant scene came and he did it and like nobody batted an eye. That was considered chivalrous instead of, you know, kind of oppressive. Like I would think of it now. Like, you can't talk to the waitress. I'll talk for you. Yes. But I mean, you you clearly, yeah, Spicoli is the best. But you clearly learned that you couldn't order my meal for me because I was a little bit like Meg Ryan in When Harry Met Sally with my... Having orgasms at the diner? (laughs) Fake ones, of course. No, but, like, everything on the side in certain ways in certain ways. Now I'm going out to dinner and I'm just like, oh, my God, I'm so thankful I didn't have to cook. Yeah. But, you know, back to the original question, I think that we're just, like, programmed to, young women are, like, programmed to, and girls, I think that just makes it a lot easier to shove it down and, like, stuff our opinions. Also, because sometimes, like, opinionated people or people that, that squeaky wheel, you know, you don't want to have that reputation. And then you add alcohol to the mix and you start voicing opinions or having a different thought process. And well, then that just leads to either, ooh, we need to dive into this and talk about it. But then there's that manipulation of alcohol wanting the alcoholic to get their way and make sure that their opinion is the one that comes out on top. Yeah. Their choices. So. Well, I think just kind of stuffing it down is one of the things that gets people stuck and makes the progress that we're talking about, individual progress that we're talking about that's required for relationship success to not happen. 
But there's also the problem of advice. And you received some of this when we were having, you know, in the throes of active addiction and things weren't going well. You know, I think generally speaking, I don't want to overdo this. I don't want to say everybody, but a lot of people suck at listening. And when I say listening, I'm talking about being there for someone in a supportive way, hearing their concerns, hearing the the challenges that they're facing, and not trying to solve the problem for them. I think this is another matter of conditioning. We are just trained by society, by our upbringing, that if someone brings a problem to you, you better offer some suggestions to help them get out of the jam they're in, or you're not being a good friend. And what I think the truth is, is the opposite of that. Just listening and and consoling and showing compassion and saying, I hear you. And that's a terrible situation. And let me know how I can help. What can I do for you to make your decision easier, to make your life easier, as opposed to let me tell you what you need to do. Because the let me tell you what you need to do advice often when it comes to an alcoholic relationship is you just need to leave. You just, why are you still with that person? You need to divorce them. You need to get out. And I think the reason that that's the most common advice comes from a loving place. If you're confiding in a best friend and that best friend is seeing that you're hurting, they want you to stop hurting. Yeah. And the quickest, seemingly, it's not, right? But what seems like the quickest solution is just leave, get a divorce, Protect yourself. Get out. You can stay at my house for a while if you need to. But the reality is when you're confiding in someone, you're not always looking for them to solve your problem. You're looking for them to show the kind of understanding that you're not getting anywhere else in your life. And you you ran... I'm not trying to drag anyone under the bus here this morning, but you ran into some of that, right? You ran into... Family talking members, to yeah. Family members Both about sides us. of the family. Like, they didn't understand why I would want to stay. And then, you know, when it was early on, but then I think that, I think that they said that, but I don't think there was a whole lot of really meaning it most of the time, you know, they just didn't know what else to say. So they felt like they had to say something. Um, and then that after a couple more kids, you know, then that was never really a, a big time discussion, like, you know. Like uh, leaving and divorcing, mm-hmm. like leaving to scare you, leaving and separating ourselves for a while. Like that was more what the, what the advice was. And I, I you know, I think, I think people, I think they said it, but they didn't really mean it because they didn't want it for themselves. Did you have any places, any people you could go to? that were good listeners or is that as rare as it feels like did you have anyone that just listened and said hey if you need someone to talk to I'm always here for you can I make you a meal but didn't say here's what you need to do not really because I didn't want to talk to anybody about it yeah that, I mean, well that part's true too it was rare know, that you brought it up right, right? um I will say, like, one of the closest while you were still actively drinking was Kelly Miller, the addiction nutritionist that we had on our podcast last weekend. Um, You know, there were some tough mornings where I was dropping off our preschooler in between dropping off the older kids and then that time gap that 
we just bonded with other conversations, but she could see that I was sad. Um, and she was a good listener. And she was a good listener. And she's a woman of faith, and so she really helped me, and I knew that her prayers were for me and my happiness and our success, even though she didn't know all the details were being heard. So, you know, then after a while, um, when you were in recovery and stuff, I confided in her more about the alcohol and, um, you know, so that made it a little, that made it a little easier to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. It, I'm glad that you had her. I'm glad that we still have her. She's, pretty phenomenal human being but it's it's just pretty shocking to me how hard it is for people to sit and listen without offering advice and I've been on that side of it too right where someone brings their deepest darkest secret to you and it's a big problem and my gut reaction is oh my god this is awful what's happening to this person I've got to help them and you want to help and so it's you know the advice of oh just leave them it doesn't come from a place of meanness right. or necessarily wishing ill on the the drinker comes from a place of kind of desperation and I, I have to find a way to help this person and yeah you just want to see them removed from that terrible situation into a place where they do not have to deal with that terrible situation yeah yeah you know and some and let me be super clear sometimes leaving is the best yes uh, option 100% well, and I have but it's rare that the person that's just listening to the tale of woe for the first time uh, has any kind of concrete insight into whether that's the best option in that particular case I mean I'll tell you with all the couples that we know and all the people we know and situations um, that we've been blessed to be brought in on right mm-hmm. we try really hard never to offer advice the, the old the old saying that we kick around a lot, you'll know when you know. We try to help people find their own path and see their instincts and push away their insecurities. But I have never told anyone you need to stay and I've never told anyone you need to go. We just try to help through other people's examples and our example, try to help people figure out their own path. And... And but that's a skill that took time to learn, and um, it it doesn't come naturally. Is that fair? Yeah. Another thing that we see a lot, and here this is one that I don't have a lot of insight to because I didn't experience it as the drinker, so I can't really relate. But it happens enough that it's clearly a thing, and that is. That the drinker, you know, finally gives in and agrees that sobriety is the right option. And maybe there's some relapses, maybe there's not, but they eventually get into a long-term pattern of sobriety. But they're not doing much in the way of recovery. Maybe they went to meetings early on and then they've decided that that's not a good fit anymore and they're just, they're done. They're going to be sober. And in some cases, that person fits the the classic definition of a dry drunk. They're still have all the same characteristics and attributes that they had as a drinker now in sobriety. That happens sometimes. Sometimes 
the person, you know, kind of just moves along. The temptations aren't that bad. The cravings aren't that bad. And alcohol is no longer a part of their life. And, you know, it like all outward appearances, everything's fine. But they haven't done any work on the underlying causes. And I know that sounds kind of, that's kind of recovery world cliche, right? Underlying causes. But it's true. I've never met anyone who works on their recovery that doesn't have underlying causes. Now, sometimes they are outwardly severe, traumatic, child abuse, sex assault, stuff like that, right? That everyone in the whole world could see that's your underlying cause and that's terrible. Sometimes they're much more subtle. Sometimes it's childhood neglect, which is doesn't present the same way as child abuse does. Um, you know, there's any number of, of things that can, you know, a lot of the people that we get to know, um, they have just been pushed to succeed and then eventually they take on the role of being their own pusher and they're pushing themselves to succeed. And so it's this achievement thing that certainly is a huge part of my story and they never can find the off switch. And the only thing that turns the off switch off, the non-existent off switch off is the alcohol. And so we turn to that to self-medicate. So a lot of times the underlying cause is harder to find. And it, it took a lot of work for me to kind of identify. Here are the four or five reasons why I drank. And these are the things I need to keep keep a, a check on, keep under close surveillance in order to stop from needing an addiction to, to medicate them going forward. And when people don't do that work at all, they just, they're just sober. And there, there, Sherry, I quit drinking. What more do you want from me? That's all I'm going to do. That is often the downfall of the relationship. And it goes back to what we said toward the beginning. Both sides need to want it. Both sides need to get individually better to do recovery, which looks different for different people, but it's, it's active. It's not passive. And if both sides aren't doing that, if one side has just said, look, I'm sober, that's all I got, then it often does not lead to a successful relationship. Mm-hmm. Or a very fulfilling relationship if you have chosen that you're going to try to, you know, stay. Yes. And I know that there's lots of theories about like staying well, and but then it's not quite the partnership that you're hoping for. And I'm not saying that it can't happen. Right. It just um, a lot of it's a it's more of a challenge and a struggle in a lot of ways. So um, I know Lori was on the podcast and talked about staying and staying well. Um, but if they're not even trying to acknowledge, you know, even not talking to their spouse, but not even talking to anybody else, I don't see how that can be successful at all without some sort of transference of another addiction or just that bad attitude, that dry drunk bad attitude. Because um, you've got to turn it and do something more positive with your life. Yeah. Fill the hole. Yeah, absolutely. And then there are those who just reach a breaking point, and this would be the loved ones of the alcoholics, the spouse of the alcoholic. And, you know, so we went through a period of detachment, which was the best thing that ever happened to us. 
that ever happened to me. Uh, I have said many times that the things that got me sober, the combination of the two things that got me sober was that my depression and anxiety reached a place that was so bad that I, I just couldn't, couldn't live in my own skin. I was so miserable. And also you detached and you no longer wanted to hear uh, what my next solution was going to be to my problem. You just were done. And that wasn't something you read in a book or something that you got from therapy. That was something that occurred naturally. And so that's one of the tough things about detachment. You can read about it. You can understand what it is. You can say, yeah, that sounds like maybe that's something that would work for me. But until you feel it, it's hard to do it. Mm-hmm. But you got to the point where you were done with me and you didn't respond when I would say, oh, here's something new or here's what I read or I'm going to try this. And that combined with my depression and anxiety was enough for me to say, I am in enough pain now that I have to quit, that it is over. And, you know, a a lot of people, we say, and I believe that there is nothing that the spouse can do to fix the alcoholic when they're actively drinking. There's, you know, it doesn't matter how many times you you find the next rehab and you do the research and you call the insurance and you figure it all out and you drive them there. Uh, it doesn't matter how much you nag or beg or plead or threaten. None of that is going to get an alcoholic sober. The only thing that's got any chance of helping from your side of the street, Sherry, is emotional detachment. And what's nice about that is it helps both parties. It helps you as the loved one to focus on yourself, find a way to try to get mentally healthy, to to work on your recovery, to work on your screwed up nervous system from living with an alcoholic. And it also is the only thing that has much of any chance of helping the alcoholic find sobriety. But it doesn't always work. Sometimes, like in our case, detachment, the timing was right. It was combined with my depression and anxiety. And that is what led to my permanent sobriety. But sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes the timing's just not right and the alcoholic isn't ready to get sober, doesn't want to get sober, doesn't want to do the work, whatever the case may be. And the detachment just drives the relationship further and further apart. It's one of the really diabolical things about alcohol. Not even alcoholism, alcohol. Alcohol is freaking diabolical. And... It creates these situations where what's right for you is not what's right for me sometimes. And it can be the downfall of a relationship for sure. We've seen that lots of sad, tragic times, haven't we? Yeah. Unfortunately, we have. Um, Aren't you glad that didn't happen to us? Yes. Did you have any... So you're in that spot where you've started to detach. Are you thinking... Aha, this is going to fix everything? Or are you no, thinking, fuck I had, him, I don't care what happens? Well, I mean, I did to some degree care what happened. Um, but it wasn't just like, I didn't want to hear about your alcohol. And no, I didn't learn it from anywhere. I didn't think about it and plan it. I just was done. I just didn't have any interest in anything you said. It wasn't even just like about your alcoholism. Other than the kids and our business, I really didn't care what your hobbies were most of the time. And I would just kind of listen to you as I would describe yammer on about whatever it is you wanted to talk about. And I'd be, uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh. Um, without really listening 
or ingesting what you were saying. How hard was it when I would bring to you something like, oh, I just read this epiphany about psychology and mental health and aren't you glad that I'm here to be your savior and share this with you? When I'm coming off, you know, 25 years of abusive drinking and I'm giving you mental health advice. Yeah, um, that one was, that was really tough in the beginning because... I felt like, oh my God, like I brought to you something, you know, years before about the brain chemistry and that was just enough of a tidbit that then you like, but you didn't really dive into it at that point. And then when you started to learn about it later on, I was like, oh yes, that was the seed planted years ago. Well, I'm I'm sure I gave you credit for the seed planted, right? Uh, I don't know. I mean, maybe because, you know, it was a while ago. But I I'm really, kidding. I don't think there's any way I gave you credit for this. But I, I definitely was like, ugh. I don't, because I was at the point of like, just so lacking of respect for you and your opinion. Because you had voiced it for so many years before. Um, you had admittedly said you were a terrible listener. And you like to just solve the problem and dole out advice. Well, I was your number one charity case, I'm sure you thought in your mind. For all those years. So, of course, I didn't want to hear what you had to say. Um, and, you know, I just thought, ugh, I just didn't even want to hear anything that you had to say. Yeah. Unless it was about the kids or the business. Yeah. I was over it. So, I, I didn't know anything about detachment. You were awfully good at it for not knowing anything about it. Well, I think that it you just saved comes our marriage. to that point. And you saved me. You know, and, and I you think saved that, yourself. I just think that everybody has to do it whenever they feel like they, you know, it's another you know when you know. Yeah. It's interesting when we talk about the things that either can, you know, wreck a marriage as a result of alcoholism and get into the weeds like we're doing today and say it's not just that alcoholism wrecked the marriage. Here's the specific situation. Um, there are things that we understand, we relate to because we experienced them. And there's things that we don't necessarily relate to. The one that I brought up so far was when the alcoholic gets sober but doesn't do the recovery work, what that looks like and how that pushes the relationship further apart. You know, I think we've often looked at that situation and been critical of the alcoholic. Why won't he do the recovery work? Why won't he try? Why won't he learn? Why won't he go to a therapist? Why won't he go to meetings? Why won't he try to get better? But... I kind of don't think that's fair to say that because having never been in that person's brain, that sobriety might have been literally all that they were capable of. That might be it. I know that in on the topic of communication, there are definitely things that I have seen as roadblocks for people and, and thought, oh, that person, for instance, can't be vulnerable. They just can't. Whether it's genetic or it's conditioning and how they were raised and what the 50 years of life experience they have has taught them, that person can't go any deeper than surface level. And it's not that person's fault. I mean, you and I have both seen examples of that. And so I wonder if that's what it's like for an alcoholic in sobriety sometimes. Look, I poured everything I had into getting sober. That's all I got. You want me to do recovery work? I can't. And it comes across as I won't. Mm-hmm. It comes across as I'm stubborn and I'm happy with things the way they are. 
But I just wonder, and I wonder with kind of a, I kind of believe this is true behind it. I think for some people, they just, they flat out can't. And so I wonder from your side of the street, if I know that I'm just springing this on you, this is nothing we've ever discussed before, but is that something that you think you could find compassion for if you were in a situation, a lot of, let me give a little more context, a lot of things that we do see are generational. We look at um, people of the, you know, our parents' generation or our grandparents' generation, and we say, oh, you know, my grandfather could not have talked about his emotions. He just couldn't have. It That's, you know, first one thing, he fought in World War II. Like, that's a different mentality and what he's been through in life. And digging into emotional work is not in his wheelhouse, was not in his wheelhouse. And for me, I can say that and give him a total pass and be like, yeah, he couldn't do it. That's fine. He was a great, great, great man. And he provided all this wonderful stuff for his family. And we honor his legacy. And we're not going to criticize because he couldn't dig into emotional stuff. But I feel like for the alcoholic who can do sobriety but can't do recovery, we're kind of disappointed in that person. But do you think it's possible that they just can't? And is there any room for compassion? I think it's possible that you can't because I feel like I'm sort of like that. You and I have this this little bit of level of vulnerability that you think that I, you know, that you feel like is still missing in our relationship in some ways. And I, um, I think that there's a lot of things that maybe I'm just not, my emotional intellect isn't there. Because I can really push stuff off. I literally can think about nothing <laughs> while I'm doing the dishes. I don't even think about doing the dishes. Like, I can think about nothing. And you laugh because you I'm cannot jealous. do that. I'm jealous. I mean, I sat here the other day, which is a rarity. I had the house to myself. I was working from home. There was not one single sound in this house. I didn't have anything on because I didn't need to fill my brain. I was just very content. So maybe it's just that they're, that yes, sobriety took all of their bandwidth. But there are some people that I don't, I mean, I think I'm one of them. I don't think I have that emotional capacity to go super duper deep. Like I, I, I gotta admit something. I really struggle to read, to read Brene Brown. I don't get it. It just. Maybe she's the wrong author for me. You know, but then I've tried to read and a lot of those 2022, things. 2022, that's a big thing to admit. I know. She's the queen of because, 2022. Because there is that there is that level of like question and here it is and explaining and then you're supposed to like ponder on it. I have I can't ponder on it. It just doesn't get me. Glennon Doyle, sorry. I just can't listen to her podcast. I I, I try. I try, I try, but then I go to Smartless. Not that we're plugging other podcasts, but I think that there is a level of an intellect that I just can't muster that maybe is going as deep as that. And and I don't think it's me being stubborn. I don't think it's me not wanting to. Um, I mean, do you agree? Do you find that in me in some ways? Like I get, I can just let me just 
say this, like, sometimes I can get really upset and frustrated about something, you know, but then, you know, I can talk it out with you and then it's kind of passed and over and I probably won't think about it. My reaction to that is that I have, you know, for a long time, I thought everyone should do things my way. I know how incredibly arrogant that sounds. But do you remember when I bought you a Franklin planner oh. for like your birthday or Wait, Christmas? Wait, can we just go back to the first one was how to organize everything, a book. You got me a book for one of our first Christmases when we were living together. How to organize I'm everything. I'm a terrible gift giver. I mean, and I might be the, the worst Franklin gift giver planner. in the world. I am awful at it. The only thing I ever used the Franklin planner for was what? So, the address book. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but so for a long time I was under the delusion that when it comes to things like organization, um, people need to learn to do it my way and get better like I am. And alcoholism really cured me of that. And the reason I say that is all the anxiety and the stress that I you know, most of my stress and anxiety has been self-imposed over the years. You know, doing it this way, being on time, being organized, never, never, you know, missing out on this opportunity or that opportunity or whatever, right? And so for a long time, I thought people just need to try harder and they need to be like that. And that's how I felt about you for a long time. But then guess what happened? All of that need for being organized and being on top of things to that degree is a huge underlying cause of my alcoholism. I mean, when you put yourself under that kind of stress and anxiety all the time, you're going to have to counterbalance it somehow. And I counterbalanced it by drinking. And so it made me stop and say, oh, wait a minute. Maybe nobody should be like me. Maybe being like me is a you know, recipe for a terrible disaster. And it made me look at things that in the past I thought of as flaws in you and be envious of them. So like a minute ago when I laughed because you said you can literally think of nothing. If you had said that to me 10 years ago, I'd have been like, why don't you try harder? You know, I'm sure there's something you could be thinking about. (laughs) Something you could be thinking about. But now I'm like, oh, so if you're able to clear your mind that way and be at peace with yourself, you probably aren't constantly looking for something to make you feel better because you feel bad because you're stressed and worried. So so I think it's great that you can't read Brene Brown. I don't think it's that you don't get the concepts. I don't think that they're not interesting to you and not applicable to you. Yeah. And I don't mean to change your words. I mean, you can stick by what you said, but you're extremely intelligent. So I don't think it's a matter of not understanding the concepts. They just, you know, people read Brene Brown because something's fucked up and they need help in their lives. Or maybe it's just, you know, and I have that, I have other authors and other podcasts that sure. I listen to that are, you know, of the self-help help genre yeah. that do speak to me. But when it comes to those those particular people, I'm like, I know they're so intelligent. I know they have so much to offer the world. I know that they have great guests, whatever. But I just can't wrap my mind around it a yeah. lot of the times. And I'm totally envious of you. I've also talked about we have a friend... That's never been on time for anything in his life. And I used to interact with him a lot. We used to play soccer together and do some other things. And it used to frustrate me so much that he was always late. But he'd show up late with a smile on his face and a joke to tell. And everyone loved him. And I loved him. I still love him. 
And I realized it's just not important to him to be on time. So, and he's not an alcoholic either. So, boy, go figure, you know? Yeah. And I started wanting to be more like him and less critical of him, even though it was only internal criticism. I never said anything out loud. But so, bringing this back to the topic, maybe sobriety and not recovery is all some people have got in them. Now, I... I think more times than not, that's probably not going to lead to a prosperous relationship. Well, and I think that there's a lot of fear that might hold people back because they're afraid of what they'll uncover or open up and discover. Um, I know that that was that was part of you know I was fearful of like when you when you did want to start talking about things I was fearful of what you would say and how you'd react and I was fearful that you would manipulate the situation and try to tell me how I was doing it wrong or not thinking this way or I need to do it this way. So there was a lot of like that preconditioning. Um, Now I'm good at shoving things down but I'm not good at um, letting it seem like there's nothing that bothers me. Like I have been very good at the eye roll and well, my emotions, have... my body, like, my body just changes a little bit, I think. My face, you know, changes. And then eventually I blow up. I'm not good about but shoving I, it down I, and pushing it aside. I think your tells are similar to, we hear a lot from the spouses of alcoholics who say they can tell if their spouse has been drinking when they walk in the door. They can tell by the way their feet hit the floor. They can tell by the way they carry their shoulders. I can tell... When something's bothering you, mm-hmm. I don't know that the rest of the world can tell because yeah. they don't know you well enough, but I can tell right away when something's bothering you to the point where I'll say what's bothering you and it'll piss you off that I've asked you what's bothering you and you're not, because you're still in, I guess, push it down mode. Is that fair? And you're not ready to talk about it? Well, or I mean, I guess it depends on, it? I guess it depends on the situation or maybe I'm not ready to like verbally process it out loud. Yeah. You know, I got to work it out because I might just scream a bunch of obscenities that won't make any sense and call everybody, you know, that was involved in the situation dumbasses and I want to go set their house on fire or whatever, but I got to like calm down and process it in my own brain a little bit. But I think this might, might be important. Are there times, because I feel like there are, I feel like there are times when I say what's bothering you and you haven't even, it hasn't even come to the conscious surface for you yet and you don't even know something's bothering you because sometimes your reaction is nothing's bothering me. Why do you always ask me? Yeah. Well, I think that was something that happened a little bit more in your early sobriety, but like... Fair. A couple years in. And then I kind of felt like, you're just digging for trouble. Yeah. You fucker, just leave me alone. And then I would sometimes like just be like, okay, fine, this. Yeah, it kind of annoyed me a couple days ago. There, is that it? Oh, now I've given you an answer and I'm happy. You're happy. So I think that... That wasn't always the best situation, but at least it unburdened me with something that you did that was annoying or yeah. a situation that didn't, like, turn out well, you know? Yeah. Well, so this is interesting. So the person who gets sober but doesn't do the recovery work because perhaps they can't, that's not something I can relate to, but it's something that you can sort of relate to. Like, you can see yeah. where that could be a thing. Yeah. The other... The other you know, again, the topic, it takes two to tangle. Both sides have to do the work to become individually strong. The other thing 
that we see on from you know fairly regularly is where the spouse of the alcoholic just hits a breaking point and they don't want to emotionally detach they want to 100% detach like it is over mm-hmm. and i'm going to do some guesswork here perhaps there wasn't great communication in the relationship to begin with because most relationships, ours certainly included, don't have great communication because it's just part of it. But so there probably, there maybe wasn't great communication to begin with and there was probably a lot of shoving it down and not talking it through and a lot of kind of seething and internal burning. And because you and I were yellers and screamers, when we would argue when I was drinking or in, in in early sobriety, you know, we tried to do it late at night when we wouldn't affect the kids and we tried to whisper scream and all of that stuff. But we got it out. Mm-hmm. We, we let the emotion show. But there are people that don't do that. And they just hold it all in, hold it all in, hold it all in. And then they reach a breaking point and that breaking point is terminal. It's not... It's not emotional detachment or trial separation. It is, it's over. And other than handing the kids back and forth, I'm never going to speak to you again for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. Now, I think... I think, too, some of it depends on the level of what was going on besides the arguments, the other, you know, and the lack of communication. There could be a lot more things like lack of respect, yeah. <laughs> not showing up, being not empathetic or sympathetic for your partner, not showing up when you need to, not being reliable, not being trustworthy. I think it's it, it's the combination of all of that on top of the addiction and you know, I think that we were fairly lucky that you had always been a little bit more verbal and wanted to share, share your emotions and share with what's going on. I mean, we all know that you like to talk, so that was never, communication was never an issue for us. So I can imagine that communication does play a big part in it, but I think there's also so many other things. You know, mm-hmm. the selfishness, the lack of interest in the kids if you have children, because you're so involved in wanting to be selfish and drinking. I know that you've often said, yeah, I would rather have been drinking than playing with the kids, but you didn't let the drinking do that all the time. There was still a lot of good things. I think that if you had shown no interest in the kids, I would have been like, yep, I'm out of here. Like, what's the point of you even, you and I being together if you're not going to be a partner? You're not going to be a helper. But in fairness, you and I know details of of situations where the drinker was very active with the kids and was a, a good father by all accounts. Mm-hmm. But it, the the spouse just reached a breaking point. And the last thing I'm trying to do here is to criticize that spouse. And again, we don't always yeah. know the backstory. I'm just saying, like, that's why but, I got emotional. Because for me, that would have been one of the things. Sure. But there's got to be a ton of other things that happened repeated, 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 repeated times. And then with no real recovery, you're at a breaking point. You're like, I've given everything well, then, I can give to this relationship. And there is, I'm not feeling... You know, either side of it. I'm not feeling reciprocated in that. I'm not even being met halfway, you feel like. Well, that's the that's the word. There's a breaking point. 
it, it goes back to you know you'll know when you know some people just reach a breaking point and starting over and being done with the marriage is is the choice mm-hmm. and that's not something that you and I really understand it's not something we experienced well and I... I'm not again the last thing I want to do is come across as being critical of someone who's decided that they can't do it anymore um, honestly in most of the time I end up feeling really a lot of empathy for that person because that's that's tough if you reach that breaking point um, but it's it's just another example of you know both sides need to want it they need to work and sometimes tragically the the spouse the loved one or the alcoholic does all the work and the alcoholic won't and sometimes the alcoholic does all the work and the loved one won't I mean and I think that that for whatever last... reason whatever justifiable reason no criticism sorry go ahead I'm really worried I'm gonna get I'm gonna come across an asshole no um I was just going to share, like, our example, I think when you were a couple years into sobriety and you were really working and pushing and I was kind of at a emotional breaking point. I feel like I didn't even really like you. I didn't know why we were staying together. I was glad that you were sober for the kids. But then this, like, reconnection of being romantic partners again, I felt like it was just too much. I felt like I could break ties with you right now. Mm-hmm. I would miss the friendship, but I wouldn't miss the romantic part. And I feel like, oh, that would have been a real downer for the kids, for sure. And everybody else, like, we've made it through alcoholism. But this just, I think, just is a testimony of how hard the relationship recovery is. I wasn't the drinker, but I was like, I can stop here. I'm fine. I don't need to go any further because I, you know, I just didn't want to be feeling like I was some sort of psychological project uh, that you had or you, um, you know, you needed to like find blame in me and I had issues because I did have issues that I brought into the relationship. I had issues that were compounded by the alcoholic, alcohol and your behavior. So there was just a lot that I had to like kind of push through and work through. And, you know, I I was kind of, like, I don't know how much I wanted to give to you. And, again, I was not the one with the alcoholic issue. So, I think you're, it could be either one. Like, and ironically, I'm the one that was not wanting to go into full discovery mode and learn all I can and, you know... Like, things could be better, and we could be better emotionally, but I didn't really feel like I needed to do a deep dive into my own recovery. And then there was a breaking point where I was like, I do need to, you know? And I'm glad that I pushed through for that for me. Not even so much about the relationship. I mean, I'm glad that I'm here with you, and I'm glad that all of it has seemed to be working out. But I was just shocked. That you were doing so well. And I was like, I could be done. I could be done. Good for you, Matt. I could go on and just be content. 
without you. And that made me really scared. Made me really scared, too. Because I was confused. I thought, I'm doing the thing that you most wanted me to do. And you're still, you know, not attracted to me. And uh, so that, yeah, the fear was definitely mutual. I mean, and I'll be honest, I don't, that fear is not gone for me. I still know that I'm more attracted to you than you are to me. I know that I have a higher sex drive than you, but it's not just sex. I have, you know, more um, needy than you are for that emotional connection. I mean, don't get me wrong, it's way better. And I'm not. I'm not worried that I'm going to come home and your car is going to be gone and I'm never going to see you again. It's nothing like that anymore. But I still know that you and I are in two different places. And I don't know. Again, back to the Franklin Planner. I don't know that we're ever going to line up and I don't know that we need to ever line up. Um, being, being like me has some serious setbacks and negativity. So... Maybe you being just like you is just perfect. And, you know, maybe a, a thriving marriage doesn't have to be totally in sync. Maybe it's okay that it, there's ways that it's not. I mean, I don't know how yeah. two humans get totally in sync. I don't think that's necessarily possible. Yeah. Well, but I used to have that as the goal. And now, now I can live without it. Yeah, I was just shocked at how you were doing all the right things and you were saying all the right things and you were working so hard and you were doing so good and I could see the changes in you. You weren't doing them just for me or just for the kids. You were doing them for yourself. But I was like, I don't even really know if I like you. But don't you think that was resentment and anger? Yeah. I I mean, you got mistreated for a couple of decades and now all of a sudden I'm sober and... And things, and my behavior's better, but it doesn't replace all the bad. Right, right. But it was just, like, that's where I think because I was stuck in those feelings that I can have compassion for those people that don't want to move forward with other things. Because I felt like I had told and shared and worked through a lot. And then I was, like, kind of afraid to go any deeper. But that's where I think that, like, there's an emotional intellect that... I'm just not on the same path, you know. I just don't. But you did. Share. You, you dug in and did the work. You got a therapist and you participated. Didn't just listen, but participated in our Echoes of Recovery group. And you talked with me. Yeah. Put up with my yammering. My yammering. <laughs> Continue yeah. to have our once a week relationship meetings where we talk about resentments. Yeah. So you did it, even if you didn't want to. Yeah. Are you glad? Yeah. At least yeah, I'm relieved. Glad I, I'm glad I did, yeah. Yeah. But so the, the message, I think, for today is just, I think it's one of compassion. I know I keep using that word, but it, in this non-scientific study that kind of is our lives now, of of universalisms of things that we see over and over again there seem to be kind of four boxes four-ish boxes 
either, or I guess it's three boxes, either the the alcoholic does the recovery work and works hard at it and gets better at the same time or in a similar time frame to when the the spouse, the loved one does the recovery work and their own individual recovery work and gets better and gets healthier and those two stronger individuals find a way to rebuild a marriage from the ashes that looks nothing like the marriage originally looked like. It's totally different, gone down a different path. So that's that's the one option. Or the alcoholic may or may not find sobriety but can't find recovery for a variety of reasons and kind of stays stuck. Or the spouse hits that breaking point or or isn't willing to do the work. Maybe they've just put too much in already. I mean, I guess that's something we haven't really said. Maybe you've just, well, you're done. You're exhausted. Yeah. You've well, put too much in already. And I know at some point in your sobriety, a couple of years into that, we said maybe there's just too much water under the bridge. Yeah. You know, that old cliche. Maybe too much has gone on yeah. to repair. Yeah. Yeah. So, cliche as it is, it takes two to tango, I think is a really, I think we'll stick with that for the title of this episode because it it really, you know, encapsulates all that we've talked about and all that we've kind of learned on this this deal. It's It's really unfortunate for, especially for the loved one, because you and I are big fans of blame the alcohol for what's happened on both sides of the relationship. But especially as the spouse, you're like, I didn't do anything wrong. All I did was hold this thing together, but I'm done. I'm out of energy. I'm out of, I don't have any more effort to give. And it, you know, sometimes that's, that's just kind of how it goes. Um, but it, I, I think what's, I guess most important is that sobriety fixes nothing, which we say all the time. And the work has to be done on both sides, individual work. You know, I think marriage counseling and early sobriety is probably a huge waste of money. You got to do your individual work before you start to come back together. And some people want that, but others don't or don't want it enough to get over whatever hump is in their way. Super complex, super diabolical. But I just find a ton of compassion and empathy. I I can't find a way to blame anyone other than the alcohol because you've been kind of painted into this corner and you're trying to find your way out. And whatever way you find out, I think we've got to have... We've got to give grace to that person because... There's no easy solutions. Can I work a few more cliches into this episode? I don't know. I don't before know. we end? You might. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to SoberEvolution.org. 
For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.